Okay, so I'm joined with uh, by the uh, joined by joined with. I don't even know how to talk. Uh, joined with would would make us some sort of conjoined twins, and we have yes. to deal with that medical situation. So, well, there you go. So I'm joined by the great Bob Costas, and so we're gonna talk a little bit about the Hall of Fame here. Uh, Bob, uh, first of all, Bob, how are you doing? How's everything going? That's a broad subject, but <laughs> things are going extremely well. Uh, I'm doing exactly what I want to do and only what I want to do at this point. I think it's a good fit for me to have some involvement with the baseball network, which has been the case since 2009, to do a few shows each year for HBO. And that's a perfect place for me. It was shortly after the turn of the 21st century when I was there for several years. And now that sure. I'm back, uh, I mean, it's a performer's paradise there, whether it's news, sports, drama, comedy, you just get to get, do what you want to do on your own terms at HBO. So all good. That's great. That's great. Now, does your, does your HBO relationship uh, ever get you on succession? Will you ever be on succession? Uh, the show? You know, <laughs> I, I kept wondering my first time around whether I'd ever be on Taxi Cab Confessions. Right. <laughs> uh, and that didn't happen. So who's to say? Who's, who's to, to say? say? It's, it's, it's all open. So we're, we're going to talk a little bit about the Hall of Fame. Uh, this is going to be great. And we are recording this on Friday, uh, January 21st. So we're about four days away from the uh, announcement. But before we get to that announcement, which I think is going to be probably... <clears throat> somewhat uh, disappointing to a lot of people. Let's talk about an announcement that was absolutely a joy. And that was last month's Hall of Fame announcement where six uh, people were elected to the Hall of Fame, including, uh, well, uh, I want to talk about a couple of them, but our dear, dear friend, Buck O'Neill, uh, one of those elected to the Hall of Fame. What was that day like for you? We'll talk about Jim Codd and Gil Hodges and some other incredible uh, people who went in that day, but specifically for Buck O'Neill, what, what was your, your sort of thoughts when that happened? Well, I think you have two thoughts simultaneously. It's a wonderful thing that he's enshrined for eternity. And it's a very disappointing thing as it was when we first heard it some years ago that he didn't get in when he could smell the roses. Yeah. He's a significant person in baseball history. And with no disrespect to the committee that they put together uh, to sort of comb through all the history and decide who might have been overlooked. As you know, there were some obvious uh, selections when they decided that they would include Negro League players. Yes. Uh, Josh Gibson and Satchel Paige and Oscar Charleston. Those were obvious. But as other veterans committees have done, this committee went back, took a look, and their assignment was, let's wrap this whole thing up. Let's right. make sure we haven't overlooked anybody. And to me, it was obvious that they were too beholden to mere statistics. Yeah. They were looking at this through a very narrow prism. Was Buck O'Neill a good Negro Leagues player? Yes. Yes. Was he among the greatest of the great Negro League players? No. Is he one of the most significant people connected, not just with the history of the Negro Leagues, but given the breadth of his life into his 90s and the depth of his understanding of baseball, not just as a game, but as a cultural institution, then he's very near the top of the list. Yeah. How they could have overlooked him was not just disappointing, it was astonishing. But then 
true to who he was, despite his personal disappointment, which he never publicly expressed, not only was he gracious, but he was gracious enough to preside over the ceremony in yes. Cooperstown when some of his fellow Negro League figures were inducted. He was just a magnificent man, and I hope that his memory lives on, and this will help his memory to live on, in fairness to the Hall of Fame, which only directs the committee to right. do its search. It doesn't make, the board of directors of the Hall of Fame doesn't make those choices. In fairness to them, they responded immediately uh, by creating the Buck O'Neill Award, which goes to people within baseball, could be a player, could be the executive, could be a broadcaster, could be anybody who's made contributions to baseball in the spirit of Buck O'Neill. So that was a great thing. And then there's also a statue, as you well know, uh, of Buck in Cooperstown. So now in addition to that, there'll be a plaque of Buck in the gallery. So can't do much better than that. But in retrospect, it would have been so much better if he could have been here to see it. Yeah, it would have been such a party, you know, to have him there. So yep. he, he was elected, as was Bud Fowler, a Negro, uh, actually pre-Negro Leagues, uh, African-American player from the 19th century. And mm-hmm. then four uh, major league players were, were elected. Uh, Gil Hodges was elected after a very long period of time uh, where he where people were arguing his case. Minnie Minoso was elected. I have such such great feelings about that. I believe he's one of the most important players in the history of the game. Tony Oliva, what a great hitter, was elected. And then your longtime uh, broadcast partner, Jim Cott, was elected. So so four players, I mean, and that's incredible to, to have them all go in in the same year. What, what is sort of your, are your thoughts about those guys? Well, happy for all of them or for their, uh, their families, in families, the case yeah. of Minnie Minoso and Gil Hodges, uh, who are no longer with us. Uh, it's very possible with the vote coming up on Tuesday and the closest to the 75% last time around was Kurt Schilling. Yes. And after him, Bonds and Clemens. And then you have people who may eventually uh, be elected, but it's unlikely that they make a big enough jump to 75% this time, the Scott right. Rollins and others. It's possible that on Tuesday, the list will be blank. It's possible. That the only people celebrated will be those that the Veterans Committee selected a while back. Um, some, like Jim Cott, Tony Oliva, will be there to speak for themselves. Heavy Minnesota Twins accent yes. to that. Uh, and others will have family members speak for them, I would guess. But it's possible that the writers will not elect anybody on Tuesday. Yeah, it is possible. Well, we're going to talk about the one guy who looks like he might very well break through that. And it's none of those guys you mentioned. Uh, so let's talk about the guys you mentioned first, because, yeah. because, you know, you and I have not only talked with each other quite a bit about the Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and to a lesser extent, Sammy Sosa. Uh, but you and I have talked about it separately millions of times. So there's not, I don't know what new ground there is to cover other than this is the last time on the ballot for mm-hmm. all three of those guys it does not look like any of those guys is not only not going to make them, the Sosa has no chance, but uh, they probably are not going to get all that close to making it. You have been, uh, I think you have had, in my view, one of the clearest eyes to this, which is early on, hey, it's fine. You, you, can, you can punish them for, for what they did with steroids and all this. 
But at some point, history must be acknowledged or whatever the case may be. What do you think about the fact that that Bonds and Clemens are not going to get into the Hall of Fame? Well, I've made this distinction. I respect others who do not. Tom Verducci, one of the very best baseball writers and observers of the game on every level, his position simply is, I don't care if the only evidence that you use PEDs was in the last year of a 20-year career. Uh, You're out, as far as I'm concerned, no matter what your achievements are. And his um, distinction, among many, is that the Hall of Fame is an honor. It's not a right. You're not saying that someone who's found to use PEDs can't return to play after the suspension. You're not saying any of those things. You're not saying that Barry Bonds doesn't deserve to be part of the conversation of the greatest players of all time. You're not saying strike his records from baseballreference.com. You're only withholding an honor. And I understand that position, and it's a defensible position. My feeling has been this, and it's a difficult needle to thread. But to my mind, if a guy was not just Hall of Fame worthy, but a no-brainer on his natural merits for an inner circle Hall of Famer, you can make a very good case for Barry Bonds as one of the 10 best players of all time, sure. um, non-pitchers, uh, prior to uh, what the evidence tells us he began using PEDs. Okay, so if you, if you rank that way, then I can make a distinction, especially with Bonds, and Clemens was pretty close to that, yeah. prior to 2000 or whatever, not as, not as cut and dry as Bonds, but, but pretty close. So I could vote and would, as you know, only writers, not broadcasters have a vote. I would have, after lodging my little protest by withholding a first ballot vote, I certainly by the 10th year would have voted for those two guys. Now, separate category is someone like Rafael Palmero, let's say, yeah. just to use him randomly. Rafael Palmero has Hall of Fame worthy statistics. It hasn't been established, and he himself has chosen not to speak publicly about it. It hasn't been established at what point in his career uh, he began using performance enhancing drugs. Right. But while he certainly has what we would call standard Hall of Fame credentials, he's not so overwhelmingly among the greatest of the great that the demerit of the PED use keeps him out. Um, so I, I put him in a different category. I also put someone like Manny Ramirez in a different category. After there was, uh, some codification of testing and specific penalties associated with that testing, Manny Ramirez tested positive at least twice and maybe three times. Right. And in addition to that, unlike someone like Barry Bonds, he was not a good fielder. He was an indifferent base runner. And he demonstrably twice quit on his teams because he wanted out. Quit on them, on on the field, right? So when you put all that together, even though, you know, you could say, well, okay, um, Manny Ramirez was as good or better a hitter than Miguel Cabrera, who's going to waltz in. Uh, no, an overlapping contemporary, yes, but his stats are not Barry Bonds' stats. He's not right. Barry Bonds. So I can be okay with keeping him out. Sammy Sosa wasn't even an all-star caliber player before PEDs, let alone Hall of Fame player. Yeah. And as insane as his numbers were during uh, the steroid era, again, different category 
for me. I feel especially bad about Mark McGuire, yeah. who is a very good guy. And as you know, Joe, I have always said, this is not about morality. It's not about criminality. It's about authenticity. Yeah. You go down a very weird path if you start saying, oh, well, back in my days, Sonny, no <laughs> one would ever do such a thing. You don't know. They're hyper-competitive people. Some of the people who use PEDs, so far as we know, are among the nicest people you ever met. Sure. And some of the people who didn't might be pains in the ass. All right. So that's not what I'm talking about here. But for what it's worth, Mark McGuire has many admirable qualities, as do some of the other people we're talking about here in this kind of jumbled uh, thing we're asked to consider. I think Mark McGuire, had he been healthy throughout his career, would have been, as the early returns on him as a hitter indicated, would have been a Hall of Famer kind of in the Harmon Killebrew yeah. class. Not a great all-round player, a power hitter, not a 300 hitter, but a guy who probably would have hit 500 home runs and would have been worthy of Hall of Fame consideration. But that's not the way it played out. And pretty clearly, the voters, even if Bonds and Clemens don't get to 75%, they pretty clearly made a distinction between those two guys no and Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, Rafael Palmero. And I think, for me, that distinction is valid. Yeah, well, it is interesting because, of course, with the Hall of Fame, the way it works, you have to get 75% of the vote to get in, mm -hmm. which is which is obviously an incredibly high threshold, as it should be, because it is yep. the Baseball Hall of Fame. But more than 50% of the voters vote for, for Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. Right. So, so that is a very big distinction. Rafael Palmero fell off the ballot, didn't even get yeah. 5%. The thing that was interesting to me with, with McGuire – and this is something that you specifically were involved with, is as I see it, McGuire came the closest of anyone to coming clean, right? Like he, yeah. he couldn't go all the way. He, you, you, you tried to press him to, to do that. He couldn't get all the way there. He, he still just could not fully admit that what it did for him as a player yeah. and so on. But... When you look at his career and you look at how great he was and what a what a incredible impact he had on the game. Mm -hmm. And then for him to come out because he wanted to stay in the game and fully admit that he did use, nobody else really has done that. And that hurt him in the voting, which is which to me is very interesting. Yeah, it did hurt him because after all. They're called performance enhancing drugs because they enhance performance. Right. And if, in fact, the only benefit you derive from it was to be able to be healthy enough to do what you naturally would have done on your own merits, then what are you apologizing to anybody for? Yeah, that's true. And when you look at this, the evidence of this is so clear. And I tried to gently present it to him, like you said, I probably gave him a half dozen different yes. chances. I wasn't, I wasn't so much prosecuting him as I was trying to actually help him. Definitely. Definitely. I, I was trying to get him to where I think even his best friends would say he should have been. Get, make, make the next step and tie a ribbon around this thing. Yes, I did it. I'm sorry I did it in retrospect. But sure, he could have said, sure, you know, I think I would have been a 50 home run guy. I think I could have hit 500 home runs. But nobody 
in the history of the game, including Babe Ruth in an entirely different context, nobody ever hit a home run once every six and a half, seven and a half, eight times at bat that right. isn't directly connected to steroid use. And interestingly enough, when you look at all the 60 plus home run seasons, except for Roger Maris's 61 and Babe Ruth's 60, they all happen in a tiny cluster yes. of seasons, Bonds, McGuire, and Sosa, all in that tiny cluster of seasons with three guys directly linked to PED use. Case closed. Yeah. Yeah. No question. No question about it. All right. One more guy who is on his ballot for the last time around who is not going to make it, it, it seems, for completely different reasons, and that's Kurt Schilling. And yeah. This one is, this one's a tough one. This one's a bit of a baffling one because there, there are all these things we're going to talk about with Schilling, but there's also Schilling himself sort of trolling the hall of fame a little bit and, yeah. and, and, and all of that. So can you make any sense of this, this Schilling situation? Well, here's something interesting. Kurt Schilling was a recipient of the Roberto Clemente Award. Yes. Baseball's equivalent of the Walter Payton Award. Someone who exemplifies good works beyond the field. Um, and he earned that with his charity work. Uh, you know, Kurt always rubbed a few people the wrong way, but I always got along with him. I yeah. liked him very much. Uh, interviewed him many times. He was a good source of information for me. So I'm sad to see this happening. And let's make an important distinction here, since this conversation has mostly been about distinctions. Some people like to see everything in primary colors only. It all has to fit one narrative or another and nothing in between. So according to some people, well, he's being kept out of the Hall of Fame because of his right wing or conservative <laughs> politics. I, I do not think that if you went through the gallery and somehow you could discern it, that this would be like a liberal meeting of, of <laughs> former ballplayers. There are a whole lot of conservative players in. There are a whole lot of right-wing and conservative writers, sure. as you well know. This is not about conservatism. It's about some of what he has put out there that just is out of bounds. I wish I could, uh, it's about as gently as I could put it. Uh, you know all the stuff. Sure. You know, it include, including some sort of odd support for what happened on January 6th. Yeah. Th this, this is what's undermined him. If he came out somehow in a conversation and said, I've never voted for anyone other than a Republican. In local elections, nationally, I've voted Republican my entire life. Big freaking deal. Yeah, no question. <laughs> Big freaking deal. <laughs> yeah. No one cares. And so for what it's worth, at least no one cares in that context. For what it's worth, if I were a voter, I would have voted for Kurt Schilling on the first ballot. Yeah. Some people leaving all the other stuff aside, just looking at it through a baseball prism, aren't so sure. But for me, you know, barely over 200 wins. OK, that might not make him automatic. But when you consider the strikeout to walk ratio, best of any pitcher with substantial innings in the modern history of the game. Right. Post 1900. And the big moments count when you're 11 and two in the postseason with a very strong ERA, and when you won or gave your team a chance to win in so many elimination game situations in the postseason, and then when you throw in something that's part of baseball lore, and for me that counts, that's the bloody sock game sure. and his involvement with 
the Red Sox breaking the curse. For me, I don't have to think about this very long. If I had a vote, I'd check his box from day one. Yeah, he was he was checked on my on my list from day one for exactly that reason. And uh, and I, too, have had a great relationship with with Kurt when he was a player. And, uh, you know, I'm sad. I'm sad to see this because I, I think it's such a self-inflicted wound on his part. And then this year, his yeah. whole I pull me off the ballot. I don't even want to be on there telling voters not to vote for him. OK, well, you know, that's you'll, you're going to get what your wish is. Um, but it's interesting you mentioned that because before getting to the one guy who I think has a shot this year. Um, you, you're talking about the postseason, I think is so important. And obviously you've always had a great perspective on this because this is sort of, uh, you're, you're not as, as, as drawn into the statistics as maybe some other people are. But beyond that, you really look at the long history of the game. I was making a point the other couple of weeks ago on a, in a column about Sandy Koufax and about mm-hmm. how, Anybody who compares great pitchers, truly great pitchers like Johan Santana or whatever to Sandy Koufax completely missed the point because, yeah. what, because what Sandy Koufax represented was exactly game seven of the world series. That's what Sandy Koufax was. I mean, his dominance is, is clear. His career is short, but more moments per, per, per pound, pound for pound, more moments of, 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 of incredible baseball lore than anybody right. maybe in the history of the game. And you can't take that away from Kurt Schilling either. Well, I don't know that I put Kurt with Sandy. No, no, and, not, not that level, but I'm yeah, saying but, yeah. that's how you judge. Yeah. And, and as great as Sandy was, you know, there, there are a few other players you might say had more moments like that, but he had a lot of, he had the perfect game. And the perfect game is not, in memory, what it was without Vin Scully's call accompanying it. Uh, If I can go down a side street here for a second, I've always felt this. If the broadcaster and in the case of television, the producer and director do the best possible job, it elevates the moment. You take Kirk Gibson's home run in game one of the 88 World Series off Dennis Eckersley. It's great no matter what. But if you don't have Harry Coyle directing it, if you don't have Vin Scully calling it and Jack Buck's call on radio, even Gibson himself understands that it is not remembered in the same way. It, the way it's presented elevates it. So Scully's call is, is inextricably linked to Koufax's perfect game. Sure. But he also won the clincher, Sandy did, in game four of the Dodgers sweep of the Yankees in 63. And then on two days rest, he pitched a shutout in game seven against Jim Cott, who yes. didn't pitch badly, but he was just bested by Sandy um, in 1965. Here's a, another side note. And this is something that deprives baseball of what is essential. I don't know if we'll ever again see the equivalent of what we're talking about here, of Bob Gibson or Sandy Koufax, or for that matter, Madison Bumgarner, or Kurt Schilling, not just doing a great job, but being there in the climactic moment of being on the mound when it happens. Now, this is really the truth. You got guys pitching a no-hitter in the seventh or eighth inning, and you know that the manager is hoping that somebody gets a scratch single so it can pull them out of the game because the pitch count is too high. So, you're not going to get those Tom Seaver moments, the, 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 the 
thing that sticks in the mind's eye. The guy pitches seven or eight great innings. He's out of there. He's not on the field when the World Series ends, when the playoffs end, when the pennant is clinched, whatever it might be. That diminishes baseball legend. It diminishes the drama in the moment. And it's a damn shame. It doesn't help baseball at all. And to, to, to go back to one of the points you made earlier, I'm not disdainful of analytics. I no. think they're very important. And as we may have discussed before, I was among the first people who began reading Bill James. And I used to put him on the, on the air. He lived in Kansas and I put it and he could hear KMOX out of St. Louis. And that's where I was. I'd put him on the air and try to explain to people who he was and the work he was doing. And at that point he was putting it out like on a mimeograph sheet <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and mailing it to people. And then he became a, a guru, which, which he deserved this kind. And I used to reference some of his stuff in the eighties uh, on the baseball game of the week on NBC with Tony Kubek. So to me, if you're thinking about the Hall of Fame or if you're just broadcasting a baseball game or writing about it, you ought to be familiar with this stuff. It should inform you. It should yeah. be part of what you consider. But the idea that here's a spreadsheet and it's the definition, yet all you have to do is look at this and we know that therefore Scott Rowland's war is higher than Brooks Robinson's. If it is, that's it. No, it's not. Yeah. Brooks Robinson defined third base the way Ozzie Smith defined shortstop. Right. And through no fault of Scott Rollins, who has more power per plate appearance than Brooks Robinson, Brooks Robinson dominated the 1970 World Series. Sure he did. It might as well, it might as well have been his signature performance. And I guess it was. It was almost like an ode to Brooks Robinson. They just kept hitting the ball his way, and he just kept making the kind of plays that if you were an Oriole fan and just listening to Chuck Thompson on the radio on a Tuesday night in June in 1962, you knew it. But then the whole country knew it. If that doesn't count for anything, then why don't we just play Stratomatic? Yeah. Why don't we just play baseball on a computer? You know, sometimes the analytics guys, not all of them, if I'm running a team, in the, either in the dugout or in the front office, I want all of this information. I want to make my decisions informed by this information, but not as a slave to it. But some of these guys, I'm talking about the guys who write about it sometimes. I'm not talking about general managers, necessarily managers. Some of these guys act as if until they hit upon the way they view baseball, everybody viewed it stupidly. And no, no other considerations count. That arrogance rubs me the wrong way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, as somebody who writes a lot about analytics and yes. finds that it's great, I find it, it, to me, it has to enhance the story. That's the whole point of it. And, and I do think it's a, it's a bit of a trap that people can fall into, which is the number is there for you. It's a clear vision you know you see it oh this is what this guy's war is and it's very vivid and and so you look at it and you go hey that guy's war is higher than that guy's war and it's it's a it's a trap though because i just sure. I, you lose the the specific elements of who these people are and who these players are and and by the way just as a as a an addition to that we talked about it specifically with colfax and Schilling or whatever there is no question in my mind that because of the way we do everything in baseball which is vote for the MVP before the playoffs begin. Don't include playoff numbers in their career stats. Because of that, there is no question that postseason heroics 
does not get viewed uh, and, and weighed as much as it should in Hall of Fame voting, I don't think. Well, it, it really should. And I do think most voters uh, pay attention to it, may, maybe to varying degrees, but I do think they pay attention to it. But you hit on something interesting. I've said this forever. The rule about MVP voting goes back to when there were two leagues, right. you won the pennant and you went to the World Series. And since there's an MVP in each league, it certainly makes sense that you can't consider World Series performance to decide the league MVP. But not only have playoffs expanded, they're about to expand again. We don't yep. know the exact structure, but it's going to take in close to half the teams in the league and varying levels, wildcard level, division series, LCS, World Series. I would say not the World Series, but you should be able to consider playoff performance when you're voting for league MVP or even rookie of the year, or certainly Cy Young, since yep. we have them in each league. You should not penalize somebody if his team doesn't make the playoffs, but you should be able to consider both a great postseason performance and a poor postseason performance sure. for somebody who you're considering for MVP or Rookie of the Year or Cy Young. I mean, it just makes sense to me. I totally agree. And I've, I've written that and I agree because I believe that the postseason has become so much bigger than it was and it will continue to get so much bigger when it was, which is there's a sad side to that, which is the regular season is meaning less and less and less. And it's it's very clear that if you are running a team, your job is not to win 110 games or 105 games or 100 games. Your job is to get in the playoffs. That's it. That's you. That is your job. And then once you get there, if you win 116 games like the Mariners did in 2001 and don't make the World Series, it ain't that great a year, you know? And, yeah. and so, so it's changed. And you can't tell me this is so vividly the most important part of the season now, and it's not being considered – in in career stats it's not being considered for awards it's not it's just it's just a weird thing that baseball has right now a couple of thoughts uh regarding that that's why when they expand the postseason they have to protect at least to some extent the meaning of the regular season definitely you can't as some have suggested say all right you got three division winners if we stay with three divisions only the best one gets a buy, and we throw the other two division winners in with the wild cards. If you're going to have four wild cards per league, you're going to eventually have the fourth wild card with roughly around a 500 record. But as recently as 2019, um, a full season, when I counted 2020, all three division winners in the American League won more than 100 games. Yep. We also know, though, the nature of baseball, anybody watching this doesn't have to be told the following. A team that wins 100 games will, in a three-game series at home in June, lose two out of three to a team that goes, you know, 70 and 92, sure. if, my, if my math is correct. That is not stop-the-presses stuff in baseball. So uh, the first round has been described, no matter what the exact structure is, it's going to be two out of three, as most people have suggested. You can do anything you want with the wild cards, including, in my mind, a wild card that, like the Dodgers, 
fell short by one game, but won more than 100 games. Yeah. Because if you're a wild card, and if that division race is going to mean anything at all, then that means you're going to be subject to flukier stuff and a tougher road than the team that won it. Otherwise, what's the meaning? And I might add the drama of the division race, which substitutes now for what used to be a pennant race. If it really didn't matter in the last weekend of the year, if the Dodgers and Giants are playing each other or the Cardinals or the Cubs or the Yankees or the Red Sox, if they're head to head and it almost doesn't matter which one of them finishes a game up and which one of them fin finishes a game back, then why are you playing the whole damn regular season? Right. But to me, once you get to the postseason, you have to protect what it means to win the division. So those guys should not participate. Those teams should not participate in the first round. Uh, you can have four wildcard teams. And the thing that the, the suggestion I find best was put forth first by Jerry Reinsdorf, the White Sox owner, which is television loves elimination games. Yeah. And you don't want teams that get a buy to sit around too long and get rusty, but you do want them to be off long enough so that if they had to go to the wire to clinch it, they can get their pitching in order because it's an advantage they deserve over the teams that were wild cards. So here's, here's his idea. One plays four among the wild cards, or you can even let the best wild card pick its opponent. Right. Maybe they match up better, or maybe they know that that opponent had to go to the wire to clinch the wild card spot. They can't start their ace in the first game. You let one select and right. then the other two play always on the home field of the higher seed. And then the two survivors play again on the home field of the higher seed. It's over with quickly, but you get, let me see if my math is okay. You get three, you get six elimination games with the two leagues together. Yes. We see the way ratings go up. It always goes way up in an elimination game. Uh, a, a game six rating in basketball, baseball, hockey, isn't just better than game five. The game seven rating jumps exponentially. Yeah. Right? So, so you've given television what it wants. You've created more inventory, which means more television money. You get through it quickly. It's entirely legitimate because if you're a wild card, you have to come in through the back door. That's what yeah. the regular season was about. Right. Even in a fluky season where one team like the Dodgers is better than every other team in the postseason, other than the team they fell one game short of, the Giants. That's the way it goes. That's the meaning of the regular season. And certainly when it comes to the third and fourth wild cards, I don't care if they said, you have, I'm, I'm exaggerating, you have to play with eight guys on the field instead of nine. <laughs> You're a wild card, damn it. We're trying to handicap this thing in a way that respects the history of baseball. So that to me is important. Now, here's another thing. You know, on, on podcasts, I just go on and on. Yes, you should. <laughs> you know, if, you, if you said to me, Joe, through all the years on the air, if they say in my ear, we need 30 seconds, I give them 29.5. I know they <laughs> just how to do it. You say to me, we want four minutes, I'm giving you 3.59. I know how to do it. But when it's open-ended, especially when we're talking about baseball, I'm going to give you what I'm thinking, and I hope your audience appreciates that. Okay. To me, and this is not get off my lawn, Sonny, and back when I was a lad, men were men, and they took the ball, and they pitched 400 innings like old Hoss Bradford. <laughs> I'm not talking about that. But given what you just laid out about the nature of baseball being so geared now toward the postseason, if your ace 
cannot take the ball and pitch a disproportionate number of innings in the postseason, or if your ace is patted on the back for throwing four innings and that got us to the next guy, right? then your ace is not worth what you may think your ace is worth. Mm -hmm. You know, Jacob deGrom is fabulous, fabulous. But all the comparisons before he got hurt again this year, the comparisons to Bob Gibson in 1968, again, this isn't like Bob Gibson's a better man than Jacob deGrom. But yes, inning for inning, pitch for pitch, he was matching up with Bob Gibson. But even had he not been hurt, Jacob deGrom would have thrown maybe 160 innings, 170 innings. Bob Gibson in 1968 threw more than 300 innings. He started 34 games and completed 28 of them. He pitched 13 complete game shutouts. I think it was was 13. Jacob deGrom has two shutouts in his career. He's taken the ball and and pitched scoreless innings countless times. But for it to be a shutout, you got to complete the game. He has four complete games and two shutouts in his entire career. Does that mean that he isn't capable? I'm sure Jacob deGrom, as a competitor, would take the ball and pitch 15 innings in a big game if you wanted him to try to do it. But that's not the way it's done now. So how can you say that that player is of equal value if he is not pitching anything like the same proportion of innings over the course of the season, but especially in the postseason? If you can't give the guy the ball three times in a seven-game series, maybe for two starts and maybe for a relief appearance. And I'm not talking about ancient history. I'm talking about Madison Bumgarner less than a decade ago. If you can't do that, then is that guy's worth really the same? I don't think it is. No, no. Especially with multi-tiers of the playoffs. If by the end of the year, this guy is so gassed because he's been geared toward, I'm only going to pitch seven innings, but the, it, it's all going to be let the throttle out. I'm going to be max effort throwing 97, 98 on almost every pitch. If by the time you get to October, no matter how carefully you manage it, you can't count on this guy to pitch even a higher percentage of the innings in October for you than he did during the regular season. Something's out of whack. Yeah. But how do I, I think most people most people would agree with that point blank. I mean, there is no question that if you give Nolan Ryan or Bob Gibson, let's go the other way. Let's reverse it. You give Nolan Ryan or Bob Gibson or Sandy Koufax and say, Hey, at a hundred pitches, I'm taking you out. How hard would those guys have thrown? How much better would they have been? I mean, Bob Gibson's ERA would have been like, 0.3 0.3 like who, who would have ever gotten hit off of a, a Bob Gibson that was not even allowed to throw more than 100 pitches not only 100 pitches per game but then we'll pitch you next on five days rest. five days rest yeah yeah so 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 you can go that way but the question here and we'll get back to to the one guy who I think is going to make it in uh in a second how do you fix it how do you go back that, that, that genie is out of the bottle, isn't yeah. it? The only way that you can move it, I think, back somewhat in that direction is to limit the number of pitchers on the roster. Agreed. Agreed. So, you have, so you have fewer bullpen options. The great managers have always been able to deal with that. Yeah. You know, Whitey Herzog and Tony La Russa uh, used their bullpens differently than contemporaries did. 
but they didn't have, and now you got the DH coming in both leagues, which yep. makes it even more popular. You don't need the bench strength. You're not talking about extra pinch hitters and all that stuff. You know, if you've got 14 guys in the bullpen, <laughs> you know, you're going to use them. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I think I that that's what's going to have to go. I, I, there aren't 14 guys in the bullpen because you're starting pitchers, but like you got 14 right. pitchers on the active roster. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it's, but it's seven or eight guys in the bullpen at all times, at all times. Yeah. Uh, that are that are ready to go for you you know I mean it's it's I think that's where it's got to go I don't know that there's the that there's the stomach to to do that because the last element of that is that the human the the, the human drama of watching a pitcher who doesn't have the stuff left trying to get people out is something we haven't seen in years and to me yeah. it was at the very heart of what baseball was Two thoughts on that. Way back when, Tom Seaver, who was one of the most thoughtful athletes I have ever known, um, he said to me when he was with the White Sox, and I'm doing the game of the week in the 80s with Tony Kubek on NBC, he said, you know, I can still throw 95. That was the number he used. I can still throw 95, but I got about a half dozen of them, Yeah. okay, a game. I'm not going to use it on the eighth hitter with the bases empty and two outs in the fourth. I'm going to save it for when I need it. And they don't know when it's coming. Yeah, That's pitching, yep. not throwing. And it's a, a fascinating part of the craft. Also, I've had this conversation with a number of managers. My point has been, and some of them agree with it and some of them don't, the analytics are very, very important. You'd be crazy not to be familiar with every bit of relevant data. Um, but the macro is made up of a zillion micros. And not every micro that goes into the calculus of the macro conforms to the conclusion of the macro. Individual moments are different. So, again, I'm not trying to put it on Kevin Cash, who's a really good manager and a really good guy. But what you would do... And the Rays, have, the Rays plan, the proof is in the pudding. The Rays plan works. Sure. Fourth lowest payroll in baseball, they win 100 games. They're always competitive. But if you say, look, this is how we manage our pitching staff. So now after six innings in June, we're taking Blake Snell out of the game. Sure, that makes sense because it feeds into your big picture plan. Yes. But in the sixth game of the World Series, right. the guy is dealing – He's given up, what, two hits or something, all right? It is the dreaded third time through the lineup. But the first time, those the first three guys are a combined 0 for 6 with like five strikeouts right. in the six at-bats. And Blake Snell is a human being who is feeling it. He's feeling it. Anderson, who comes out of the bullpen, had been great all season long, but he had been scored upon in each of his last five or six postseason appearances you know I, I i hate to go back to the same thing and i guess it dates me although stratomatic still exists remember when you played stratomatic as a kid sure the guy's card whether it was pumpsy green or it was bob gibson the guy's yep. card was exactly the same the probability is exactly the same every single time yes right? but but the world doesn't work that way and that night in october is not the same as a night in may yeah yeah. And, and I, if you can't be aware of that, as as Joe Torre once said to Brian Cashman, Brian Cashman's been a very successful general manager. 
Brian, you got to remember, this game has a heartbeat. Yeah. And if it didn't, why the hell would we care? Right. Only, only a bunch of like computer nerds would care. <laughs> no, you're right. I mean, you're right about, I mean, it's, well, the, the, we, we could go on and on about the Kevin Cash call. But, but we uh, did go on and on, at least <laughs> I did. <laughs> All right. So there are two new guys on the ballot, one who is no chance and one who has, I think, an excellent chance. The no chance is A-Rod, Alex Rodriguez. Yeah. Uh, you know, he is in that elite group that you were talking about, which is yeah. way, way, way above one of the all-time greats. I think number 16, maybe in the baseball 100 for me, for me, one of the all-time great players. Obviously, we know about the PD situation. No chance he's going for his ballot anyway, even if, even if at some point uh, uh, circumstances change, but he'll probably do okay. The other is David Ortiz. And David Ortiz is at least right now tracking to get in. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I think that you're right that A-Rod will be at least, quote, punished by not being mentioned uh, or checked on the first ballot by uh, a number of voters. It isn't just the connection to PEDs. It's that it happened twice. Sure. And Positive, yeah. he, was, he wasn't truthful about it. Right. And then he sued baseball. Yeah. Now he, he's made a huge personal comeback. You know, he's, he's on, was on ESPN Sunday Night Baseball. He's on the Fox uh, pregame and postgame shows in the postseason. And, you know, for whatever it's worth, he comes walking out on the Tonight Show uh, or someplace and the place goes nuts. Yeah. You know, they, they just kind of embrace him. Now, that's not universal among the sporting press, but he certainly made a strong personal comeback. And I think you could say, and everybody felt this way about him as a prospect and as a young player with Seattle, he would have been a Hall of Famer on his natural merits and quite likely an inner circle Hall of Famer. I believe that he will get in, and I don't think he will have to wait to the ninth or tenth year on the ballot. But I do believe that enough writers will withhold their vote, that he will not get in. Ortiz is the first time around. Uh, Ortiz is a different category. The only direct connection to PEDs we have is that his name showed up on that survey testing, That's right. which was designed to determine what percentage of players were using PEDs. And from the Players Association's perspective, if it rose above a certain threshold, then we would agree to testing. And lo and behold, it did. But uh, and maybe Commissioner Manfred is, was giving a uh, big poppy cover here, but there's a notion that some of those tests were false positives. Yeah. And in any case, uh, those results were supposed to remain confidential. That's right. The thing should have been destroyed. In fact, they could have blanked out the names. They're only trying to find the, the total percentage. That's all they were looking for. Yes. Um, so, in that, in that, and there were no penalties assigned to it. They were just trying to get the information. And beyond that, even when testing was in place during his career, Ortiz never tested positive. He's enormously popular, the whole yes. big poppy persona. And you want to talk about big moments? You want to talk about postseason? Yeah. He's on the Mount Rushmore of that. Yes. So, I mean, I, th I think he gets in. It's not, it's not maybe over 90%. Uh, because some people might be skeptical, but I think he solidly gets in on the first ballot. Uh, and I think A-Rod will have to wait for a while. 
That's interesting to me. Uh, and I agree with you totally about, about uh, uh, Ortiz. I think he's high And your 70s. memory is correct. I'm leafing through my baseball 100, which I always keep at my side, <laughs> no, no matter where I go. And there, there it is. A-Rod is number 16 in the Joe yeah. Kozlowski baseball 100. And, and I don't know, like, we're, we're speaking on a Zoom. I don't know if you're going to use the video or just the audio, but for those getting just the audio, I am holding up my copy of Joe Posnanski's Baseball 100. And as I told Joe before we started this, I have half a mind since I travel under non-COVID circumstances very frequently. I've spent much of my life in hotels covering <laughs> ball games, And I, I, I have half a mind, and I may be down to half a mind just generally speaking, but <laughs> I have have a mind to take this with me into all my hotel rooms and put it in the other dresser drawer. The Gideon <laughs> Bible is always there. And the Book of Mormon is sometimes there. And if it's a Hilton hotel, it's like the biography of Conrad Hilton. Well, <laughs> this is kind of my religious text, the Posnansky 100. But it's too thick to fit, by the way, in most dresser drawers. So I, I may be up against it. So that would are. be that would be the only issue. That would be the yeah. only issue. Um, you said something about A-Rod that, that really struck something in me. So we can move on from Ortiz because I agree with you 100%. I think he gets in. I'm glad he gets in. He's one of the yeah. – he, he truly is. You can't tell the story of baseball without him. That's a big issue for me when I think about the Hall yeah. of Fame. A-Rod gets in. You believe at some point during this yes. run, okay? Yes, I do. When he gets in, assuming mm -hmm. this happens, does that open the door for, for Bonds and Clemens to get in through a committee? Because I don't believe right now the appetite is there even in a committee to put them in. Well, I think the committee is so distinct because the writers might say, well, this is the same forum in yeah. effect. Uh, we as a group have denied Bonds and Clemens, the 75%, but now we as a group have elected A-Rod. Yeah. But by the time that happens, Bonds and Clemens cases will have been remanded to veterans committees. Right. And those are 16 people, uh, the composition of those committees changes over time. So it's very difficult to predict how they might feel. Uh, some, some of the people on those committees are former players who played either in non-steroid eras or played clean against players who were cheating. Yeah. You know, yeah. and so, so it's hard, it's hard to predict about that because 16 people, uh, it's it's hard to hard to to guess because it's not consistent. It's not right. uh, it's not 400 baseball writers. Although when we're talking about baseball writers, what clearly has happened is that over time, as some of the older writers have aged out and younger writers reach the 10 years and become eligible to vote, even though the younger writers are certainly aware of PED use, they are not as hostile toward it. Yeah, generally speaking. So they, they take a more lenient view as a generalization than the older writers have. So if, if, if Bonds and Clemens stayed on for 15 years, which used to be what, what the That's right. ban was, they stayed on for 15 years instead of 10, they might have a shot because the electorate would change somewhat over that time. And it's interesting because the 15 to 10 year uh, thing may have happened because of them. Like that literally, that was right around the mm -hmm. time that they got on the ballot is when they changed that rule. Well, Bob, this is this has been great. We could do this forever, <laughs> but and it seems like I did. <laughs> no, no, this has been awesome. Uh, so I can't thank you enough. Thank you, Joe. Always, always a pleasure. Um, I would imagine that most of the people who uh, check out your podcast 
are familiar with the Baseball 100. But this is just such a joy. Nobody's going to read it from cover to cover. They'll read all of it, many people will, but not sequentially. The great thing about it is you can just flip to, let's see what he said about Joe Morgan. Oh, good. And that's your reading for tonight before you nod off to sleep. And you jump around uh, with, with all of it. The thing that, that flummoxed me, though, was that most of it is in order of how you rank them. And it's difficult to, how do you parse who's number 91 and who's number 83? Difficult. But then you throw in a random thing where you just put somebody at a number that's associated with a number from their career. Yeah. So like, how is Joe DiMaggio 56? <laughs> oh, because he hit a 56 straight game. So there you have it. I love it. I love it. Well, thanks, Bob. I, I really appreciate this. All right, Joe. Be well. I'll see you, man.